Let's all open our Bibles to Ephesians 5. And today, God willing, we'll concentrate on the first two verses. When God inspired the writers of the Bible, he did not inspire the chapter and verse divisions. Those came about in the Middle Ages, Roman Catholic monks copying manuscripts in Latin and sometimes in Greek, put in chapter and verse. Actually, first the chapters and then later in the Reformation, the verse numbers. I say that because we look at this verse in conjunction with the previous verse. Chapter 4 ended... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Do you see the connection? God forgave you. You imitate God by forgiving other people. So he says, be imitators of God as dear children, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. We are to imitate our heavenly father. Jesus gave us the perfect example of how to live. He was perfect in everything. He never sinned. In fact, on one occasion, he says, I have given you an example. That was the time when he got down on his hands and knees and washed the filthy feet of those 12 apostles. Now, just think how dirty those feet were. They wore sandals, and they walked on dirty roads, that was not just dirt, and they came, and there was no servant to wash their feet, and they didn't take turns washing each other's feet. They were above that, and Jesus surprised them. He washed their feet, and then he dried them, and that's when he said, I have given you an example that you should wash one another's feet. Now, there are churches that think that that was like a new sacrament. No. But whether we literally wash another person's feet or not, Jesus was giving us an example of humble service to one another. 1 Peter 2.21 says Jesus is our example. Now Jesus is God, so he gave us the example of not just being a perfect sinless man, but of God. We are to imitate God in certain ways, just like the previous verse, as God forgave you. Now, there's some things that we can imitate God. God says, be holy as I am holy. He says, be loving as I am loving. Be wise as I am wise. Jesus once said, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. But there are some ways we cannot imitate God. He says, be holy, but he doesn't say, be omnipotent as I am omnipotent. He says, be loving, but he doesn't say, Be everywhere as I am everywhere. Be infinite, no. In theology, we say there's a difference in the attributes of God. They're communicable attributes. He communicates holiness, love, wisdom to us. We should develop those and imitate him. And then there are incommunicable attributes that we cannot. But it says here, be imitators of God. And then also the next verse, walk in love as Christ loved us. So it's back to imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you who remember a few years ago that, I guess you'd call it a Christian fad. Anybody remember WWJD, the little bracelets? What would Jesus do? And that was a best-selling book, and that was kind of a fad that came and went. But it had some truth in it. 
you're in an, an unusual situation and say, well, what would Jesus do from what I know in the Bible? Someone said it's even better to ask, what did Jesus do? And then to imitate it. We are to imitate Jesus. Some years ago, I did some study on the history of Christian books to find out what were the best-selling Christian books in all history, of course, outside the Bible. And I was intrigued because some were Catholic, some were Protestant. And uh, probably the best-selling one was the Confessions of Augustine. Others say, no, it was Pilgrim's Progress by the great John Bunyan. But the third best-selling book was entitled The Imitation of Christ. And that's been popular both with Catholics and with Protestants. And the theme is we should imitate Christ in ways that he calls upon us to imitate him. And that's an important biblical truth, as it says here, be imitators of God as dear children. Then we look, concentrating mainly on verse 2 today, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Now, he's used the metaphor of walking already, I think it's five times in Ephesians. It's a metaphor for a way of life, just like one step after another, we go through life one day at a time, one hour at a time, and it starts when we become a Christian, just like a little baby learns how to walk when mama or daddy holds his little hands up and helps him to take a step or two, and, he kind of, and then comes that wonderful day when, and some of you parents know what it's like when you let go and the little child waddles and takes its very first step by himself. That happened to you when you became a Christian. You took the first step by believing in Jesus, and then you repented. Now you are saved. You began to walk. Trust and obey, as we sing in one of the songs. We walk by faith, the Bible says. So it says here, walk in love. And the walk refers to not only the uh, external life, but the internal attitude. It says walk in love. Now that's an internal attitude, but you don't just keep it in your heart. You put it externally in your life. And you do this in all of life. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. And Jesus said the greatest, the second greatest commandment of all is to love your neighbor. He even said love your enemies. Later he'll say husbands love your wives. So the Bible tells us regularly to love. And notice it says as Christ has loved you. There's the golden example again. Christ loved us not just by washing the apostles feet. Think of many other ways that he has shown love to us. Many of you can think back to when you were really hurting, physically, emotionally, relationally with your family, and the tears flowed, and Jesus showed up and comforted you. That was because he loves you, just like a mother will comfort the crying child and say, that's okay, mama's here, and mama gets out her apron and wipes away the tears. The Bible says God loves us like a father and will wipe away tears. And that's what Jesus did. I am convinced that for those three years that when Jesus was on earth, in addition to teaching and preaching and healing, he comforted. I'm just sure when all those people came to be healed, there would be people that would be coming weeping. There's that story of that man that came and said, Jesus, my little girl is about to die. I'm sure he was weeping 
Can't you just imagine Jesus giving him a hug and wiping away the tears? Yes, Jesus still loves us. But the greatest display of his love is right here in this verse. Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God. He loves us. And he shows the greatest display of his love for dying for us. It says later in this chapter, husbands love your wives. You have to be willing to die for your wife. Like Christ died for his wife, which means the church, Christians. 1 John 3.16 says, this is love, that he laid down his life for us. Why would Jesus bother to do that? We're his worst enemies. You can't say, well, I'm a nice person. I'm lovable. No, you are not. The Bible says we're filthy sinners. We're enemies of God. And God would be absolutely just to send us all to hell and not forgive a single one. Because God is holy and we are unholy. Why then did God send his son into the world? And having come into the world, why would Jesus suffer, bleed, die on that cross way back then? He didn't die for the good angels that loved him. He died for his enemies. Remember, he said, you love your enemies. He loved us. That's why he died for us, because the Bible says he loves us. Look at this verse again. As Christ has also loved us. And the Bible repeatedly unites that with his dying for us. Galatians 2.20, Apostle Paul said, The Son of God loved me and died for me. Now there's a debate amongst theologians. Did Christ die for everybody or only for his people, the elect believers? But either way, he loved people when he died for them. Does that touch your heart? When you think he loved me. When you sing that little children's Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Does that touch your heart? It touches the heart sometimes of little children that feel totally unloved. Maybe they come from a dysfunctional family and they wander into a Sunday school room and the teacher says, let's sing Jesus loves me. And that little child says, you mean that Jesus loves me? Yes. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. Though there are many millions, billions of people in the world, and even more throughout history, he looks upon individuals and says, I love that person. And he personifies it by looking at you and says, I love you. And you can sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. John the Apostle was known as the Apostle of Love because several times in 1 John 4 he talks about the love of God. And back in his gospel, the gospel of John, five times he uses an interesting phrase to identify himself kind of anonymously. And he calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the others. This is his way of saying, he loved me. He died for me. And brethren, you can say, I am a disciple whom Jesus loved and still loved. He loves us from the heart. We should love him from the heart. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, said, Jesus is God's beloved son. He should be our beloved savior. Now, why did he die for us regarding the love of God? It's not that Jesus died to make God love us. No, he died with relationship to God for another purpose we'll look at in a minute. And it didn't have to do with love. 
He didn't die to somehow encourage God to love us. He died because God loved us. He's the display of that. It says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he died. Years ago, one of the great Puritans said, it wasn't the nails alone that kept him on the cross, but it was the love in his heart that kept him on the cross. And that's why Jesus died, because he loves us. And it says here, he gave himself. Just like John 3.16, we all know, God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus so loved us that he gave the greatest gift of all, himself. Look at it says, he gave himself. Like Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. How? Well, we're told specifically, as an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now let's, let's settle on that for just a few minutes. An offering and a sacrifice. Now you'll have to think Jewish to understand this. Paul was a Jew, and at least some of the Ephesians were. The Jews then knew all about offerings and sacrifices. Offerings doesn't mean, you know, you put money in the offering plate. It meant an animal that was sacrificed. And that's what the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple were for, was for these sacrifices to God. And it had a very great significance because there would be sacrifices every day, especially on holy days like Passover, and especially on the great sacrifice day of the year that the Jews call in Hebrew Yom Kippur. It's in September, we call it the Day of Atonement. That's when the great sacrifice would be done that one day a year by the high priest. And so they'd have various animals throughout the year, like a lamb or a bull or a goat. Sometimes there'd be spices applied or salt. And together with the death of the animal, very important, that sacrifice that was offered had to be an animal that was without spot or blemish. You couldn't bring some scurvy animal or a lamb that had only three legs. It had to be without any kind of fault or blemish, but it just didn't have to die. It had to shed blood because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Le- Leviticus 17 says, I have given you the blood to make an atonement for the sin. So that's why the sacrifice was made in order to provide an atonement to God. And so both the blood and the death of the sacrificial animal was brought in. And here's what they would do year-round, bring in the sacrifice to that priest, those were the Levites, and then especially to the high priest, and you didn't bring the sacrifice to him, it was already provided, that sacrificial lamb. And so they'd bring in the sacrifice there for the priest or the high priest, and what he would do is this, he'd inspect it, make sure it was healthy, and that it was obtained in the proper way, perhaps raised by a special Jew. He'd inspect it. And then he'd say a special prayer. And then he'd take that little lamb and lift it up and put it on the altar. Now, the altar was right outside the room called the Holy of Holies. And the altar was about the same size and shape as our communion table. I think that's why they make communion tables to remind us of that. And so he'd take up that little living lamb who had no idea what was about to happen, 
and the priest would lay it on top of the altar. And it says in the book of Psalms, he'd take a little rope and tie each of the feet to the corner of the altar, because on the corner they'd have these little horns sticking up to tie the animal down. Now do you see what's, what's happening there? He's preparing for the sacrifice of that lamb. And then he would pray certain words in Hebrew to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would say things like, we offer this because we are sinners and we need to give this to you as a symbol that you demand a sacrifice. And then that priest would take out a certain knife that had been blessed by the priests and they'd raise it up one last time and look at that lamb and then the knife would go down and slay the lamb. But the lamb didn't die immediately. You know, I have hunted and I have sometimes wounded an animal and it thrashes about and and it spurts out blood and it makes certain sounds, just like at a slaughterhouse. But when that priest killed that sacrificial lamb, it didn't die immediately because it was both the death and the suffering and the blood that was making the sacrifice. Orthodox Jews would understand that today. Many years ago, over in London, England, there was a famous court case that went all the way up to the Old Bailey, the highest court. There were those that wanted to protect the animals that were being slaughtered, you know, the cows and the goats and various animals that would provide meat for the British people. And they brought the Jewish butchers to court because they said, Your Honor, they are killing these animals in a very painful way. That they slit its throat and it's bleeding all over the place. And that poor animal, it could be be lamb for lamb meat or it could be animals like cattle. And it's thrashing about in great pain and blood everywhere. And we want to put a stop to this. But those Orthodox Jewish rabbis and the Jewish butchers said, this is our religion. We have to do it this way to prepare kosher food. They didn't say this is a sacrifice, but kosher food means you have to drain the blood out, and that means it has to sacrifice. And that's like an echo of what happened in the altars of the Old Testament. And so guess what? They won the case because they said our religion says this. Now I say this for this reason. That sacrificial animal had to suffer, bleed, and die. And when he did it right, he would then take the blood into that earliest or the deepest room called the Holy of Holies. And there was another altar like that. And he'd put the blood all over the top of that to say the lamb has been killed, it suffered, and here's the blood as the final part of the offering and sacrifice to God. If this was done properly and the people were outside praying and if he did it just right, God accepted it and he gave proof by showing the bright light of the Shekinah glory of God in the Holy of Holies and that priest alone would see it. That was like the smile of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. Why did God do all that? Well, we find the answer in the book of Hebrews and a few other places in the New Testament. This was symbolic of the great sacrifice. Look at the verse again. 
Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice to God. Those were simply symbolic things, that lamb, the bulls, the goats. Those were all symbols of the great sacrifice, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Unfortunately, some Jews missed it. And they thought that the blood and the suffering of this bull or that goat or that lamb, that that appeased God. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, the great John Calvin said, what kind of a God do you think we worship that can be appeased by the blood of a dead goat? Or the bleating of an innocent little lamb? He says, animals can't do that. Christ did. He satisfied. He appeased the Father. So you see the symbolism there. But people miss that. Why? Because they miss several significant things in the sacrifice. God demanded a sacrifice. Somebody said, well, why can't God just simply overlook it? Because God is holy. He has to be appeased. He has to be propitiated. And that means blood has to be shed by a sacrifice that dies and suffers. But only one could do that, and his name is Jesus. This was symbolic of him. Did not John the Baptist point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God! That's him! But a lot of people miss this. But without the sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness. Let me tell you a personal story of how a friend of mine came to realize this. His name is Rick. He's with the Lord now. Before he became a Christian, when he was in high school, he was kind of a tough boy. He, he was an Italian-American. Boy, you talk about macho. Rick was macho. Later became a policeman. But Rick was raised kind of nominally Catholic and didn't understand all this, but he liked a certain girl named Maria, went to school with. Wanted to ask her out, and she said, well, Rick, you're not a Christian, and I only date Christians. Well, good for Maria. And so Rick said, well, let me kind of get some more religion, and Maria will go, will go out with me. And so Maria said, well, before you become a Christian, you have to start reading the Bible, Rick. So he says, okay. So he got a Bible, and he started on page one. Started reading through, and said, ah, so that's about Adam and Eve, page one. And, oh, they sinned, and then moved along. Oh, yeah, about the flood, I heard about that, and... Abraham, that's the beginning of the Jews. He said, yeah, these are nice stories. And he comes to Exodus and hears about the deliverance of the Jews. But when he got to the Ten Commandments, he felt real nervous and said, I don't know if I want to go through with all this. And then after that, all those laws that God had given to the Jews, and you know the ones in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and boy, Rick started feeling guilty because some of those hit his conscience Oops, I did that sin. And it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, he was so nervous. He was coming under conviction of sin. And then he came to the book of Leviticus that talked about the sacrifices that I've just described to you. And he put two and two together, came up with five, but he was close. He said, God says there has to be a sacrifice for forgiveness. And he says, I've got to have forgiveness because I'm lost. I'm doomed. I'm going to hell. I'm having nightmares. And he says, I've got to get forgiveness, but there, it says no, no forgiveness without a sacrifice. And he said, I don't have a lamb or a bull or a goat. Am I supposed to bring an animal to the Catholic priest? And he does it, and it's kind of behind the curtain. He, he couldn't figure this out. And so he said, the only animal I have is my dog, Sam. And he went to Marie and says, does God want me to take Sam to church and get, let the priest kill that dog? 
And, and Maria says, you miss it all, Rick. Jesus is the sacrifice. And it's like his eyes open and the tears flow. He says, that's why Jesus died. Yes, on the cross, he was the sacrifice. And Rick very quickly became a Christian when he believed Jesus was the sacrifice for him. Later, he became a policeman, and I knew him when he studied at Dallas Seminary. And then he became a pastor back in Michigan and out in Washington and then to Pennsylvania, had two children. And then three years ago, the Lord took him home because of COVID. But do you see the point of the story? He understood what this verse said. He was the only sacrifice. And in believing that, he was saved. Do you believe Jesus is your sacrifice? Not your good works, your baptism, or anything like that. Only Jesus Christ. You say, well, how does that figure? He didn't die on an altar. He died on the cross. That was the altar. He was also the high priest sacrificing himself. And that's what the book of Hebrews tells us. So God demanded a sacrifice. And the Bible uses various words like sacrifice. For example, propitiation. That's a word you don't hear too much in English, but it's a Bible word. Let me read these verses for you from 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is another word for the sacrifice that, we, that is given to God and now he is satisfied, his anger has been appeased. He's no longer angry, he is appeased. Now we call this atonement. Another word theologians use is this is satisfaction, that God demanded satisfaction. He demanded propitiation. He demanded a sacrifice. Now, this may be a little bit unusual to us Americans, thinking about satisfaction, but this time, go over to France and think like a Frenchman. Go back two or three hundred years. The idea was a man of honor demanded satisfaction if someone dishonored him. Another man insulted him in front of other people, and this man said, you have dishonored me. I, dis I demand satisfaction. And he had slapped the other Frenchman on the cheek, backhanded, sometimes with a glove, and challenged him to a duel. And they'd go out to a certain place, and the one... The other man then had the choice of weapons, usually swords or pistols, because it was a duel to the death, sometimes fists. I never saw one. This was outlawed in America, but as you know, I'm from New Orleans, which was, of course, a French colony, still very French down there. Did you know that I lived about a mile and a half, two miles from the famous Dueling Oaks on the southeast corner of City Park? I can take you there and show it to you. These famous oak trees that are still there after 200 years, that's where they fought many a duel. And many of the Frenchmen and the Cajuns would go out there with swords. 
to the death because someone says, I demand satisfaction. You have dishonored my honor. Now, I'm not defending dueling, but they had one essence of that that was true. If someone's honor has been offended, there has to be satisfaction to gain reconciliation. Now, go back a thousand years, and there was a great theologian named Anselm of Canterbury. And he said, God's honor has been offended. God has to be satisfied. You see, beloved brethren, our sins have dishonored God. It not only makes God angry, he's disgusted by it. He's dishonored. And he has a righteous anger that says, you have dishonored me. You're God, you're creator. You have insulted me. I demand satisfaction to the death. But as Anselm said, nobody could present that satisfaction to God. Because we are sinners. Or Jonathan Edwards said it would be a strange way of making satisfaction by offering more sin to God. And as Anselm said, only God could provide that satisfaction. But man had to do it. And so in his great book, Why Did God Become a Man? He says that's why God became a man. To satisfy his own honor. To propitiate his own wrath. To provide the sacrifice. God became the sacrifice he provided the satisfaction. God cannot simply overlook sin. He demands payment. He demands satisfaction, propitiation. He demands this sacrifice. And he provides it himself. That's why Jesus became a man. Someone might say, but isn't an apology or repentance good enough? For example, they say, well, set God on the side for one moment. Let's say... Uh, my eight-year-old child has disobeyed me and he comes to me and says, Daddy, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And maybe he has tears. And you say, okay, son, I forgive you. Can't God do that? After all, it says forgive as God has forgiven you. So they say, isn't repentance enough? Why do we say there has to be this sacrifice and satisfaction? Because God's not another man like we are. Repentance is required, but repentance is not enough. For example, use the human analogy, not of a family, but of a law court. Suppose there's a man that's been arrested and convicted of first-degree murder. And let's say he goes to the judge, throws himself on the mercy of the court and said, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I did it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Can you let me off? What would you think if that judge said, that's good enough, you repented, I'll let you go free? Absolutely not! You don't, repentance is required, but more than that, there has to be punishment. The law has to be honored. We cannot satisfy or appease God. We cannot offer a sacrifice, not even our tears. Only God can. And that's what God did at the cross. Look at verse four, chapter 4, verse 32 again, as we briefly said two weeks ago. As God in Christ forgave you, and I use the analogy, forgive means to give for. Doesn't the Bible say Christ gave himself for us? 
as our substitute in order to reconcile us to God. And when he died on the cross, the Father accepted it. No more sacrifices are necessary. He said, it is finished once and for all. And notice again it says here, he made this for us. Now, some translate this as for you, but it's the same thing, speaking to the same group there. It's substitutionary. Christ died in our place, or as one of the hymns says, in my place condemned, he stood. We deserve to go to the cross. Jesus said, step aside, I will go to the cross in your place. Our substitute. And he was the only one that could ever do that. Not those Jewish high priests, not Moses, not David, not Mary or Peter or Paul. Only Jesus could do it. And he did do it. This has been well illustrated by a story I heard some years ago. And I would share it with you. Long ago in another land, a couple hundred years ago, there was a king. And he honored the law and everybody respected. We have a good king. He was also the biggest, strongest man in the kingdom. A very wise king. But he had to uphold the law. And one of the law, the laws said, if anybody is caught stealing from the king, he would have to be punished with 40 lashes of a whip by a very strong soldier. But hardly anybody could survive such a whipping. In the course of time, they brought someone before the king and said, Your Majesty, someone has stolen a silver goblet from you. And the law says that person has to be punished with 40 lashes of the whip. No exceptions. The law has to be satisfied. And the king said, well, who is it? Your majesty, it's your elderly mother. Think of the dilemma that the king was in. If he let her simply go, the law then was abolished. It was ignored. But if he honored the law, how could she possibly survive this? And everybody was waiting, kind of like waiting for the judgment of Solomon. And so the king said, the law has to be honored and satisfied. So take her and they tied her to this post and she was weeping. He says, call in the soldier. And he brought in the whip and cracked it a few times and everybody trembled. And the woman was trembling. And the king said, get ready to count to 40. The man pulled back the whip. The king said, halt, white, hold on. The king stepped down from the throne, tore off his shirt, knelt down over his mother and put his arms around her and said, begin. One, two, all the way to 40. Almost killed the king. But you see, he was holding her and protecting her and at the end of it, he could hardly stop from fainting. But he whispered to his mother, Mother, I love you. And she said, Son, I love you too. The law was honored by a substitute. The only one that could be the substitute. And he did it out of love. Jesus did that for us. He literally did take a whipping. You know that? The gospel says he was whipped by those Roman soldiers. But oh, dear friends, he was whipped by someone stronger than that. 
He was not tied to the whipping post. He was nailed to it and he was whipped by the wrath of God. The pains in his soul far exceeded the pains in his body. And it wasn't a whip, it was the lightning of God's wrath for six hours over and over and over again. And Jesus did that because he loved us, he was our substitute. Think in terms of him hugging you and taking that on your behalf. It says he was an offering and a sacrifice to God for us. Some people deny that today. Even so-called Christians, they say, well, that's cosmic child abuse, slaughterhouse religion. What's your attitude when you think of the cross? It should move you to tears and gratitude and worship. He would do that for you. Lastly, the verse says he did this for a sweet-smelling aroma. Why did he add that? It mentions that in the Old Testament, that when it was done properly and the, the, uh, the carcass of the lamb was burnt because it was a burnt offering and a certain cloud would go up and it, to human noses it might not smell good, but to God it was pleasing. He was appeased. He was satisfied. It was like a sweet aroma. Now let's use that metaphor and turn it around, not so much the smoke going up to God, but toward us in the gospel. How does this touch you? Is it a sweet-smelling aroma or a foul odor? 2 Corinthians 2.16 says to unbelievers that are perishing, the preaching of the cross is like a stinking aroma, like a skunk. But to believers that see the significance of this, it is sweeter smelling than the best perfume. It plays God. It says here a sweet smelling aroma. Isaiah 53.10 says it pleased God to put Jesus to death. You say, wait, wait, wait. How could it please God the Father to put his own son to death? It wasn't just the Romans and the Jews, but it was God the Father. He was satisfied. That word means the anger has been appeased. To see his only begotten son suffer like that. How could God throw out his anger upon him and yet be pleased with this? It's a deep, deep mystery. God still loved him even when he punished him on our behalf. You see, Jesus did this out of love to the Father. The Father did it out of love to us. Jesus not just showed love to us when he died. This was his offering to his Father he still loved the Father. This was his love gift to God the Father. Is it sweet to you? And using the metaphor of satisfaction, does what Jesus did on the cross satisfy the deepest longings of your heart? It should. You see that he has taken away your guilt and your sins and replaced them with love and forgiveness and every and a thousand million Blessings, that should satisfy us. It reconciles us and it extinguishes our enmity to God. We're reconciled and we're his friends. And it moves us to love him who did this out of love for us. If you're not a believer, I urge you to meditate upon this. This is the gospel. This is what Christianity is all about. This is how you can know God and be forgiven. And for those of us here that do believe in Jesus, 
and we know this truth, let us meditate upon it as we eat and drink, because this offering, this ordinance, symbolizes what he did on the cross. So when we eat and drink, let's remember and love him. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that you loved us so much as to give your precious darling son to suffer and die for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us and you shed your precious holy blood for us. And now we obey you by eating and drinking to remember your sacrifice and to say, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.